When word came to send Balat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Senbalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I, le why, while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Senbalat sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are, re you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this pro proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You were just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, I think, thinking their hands, the hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was shut in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple's do temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go out into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Senbelet had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would, be would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Senbelet. Ballot, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Ilul in 52 days. When all our enemies had heard this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehonanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Barakiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and telling him what I had said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers of the Levites were employed were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hen Henani, along with Henaniah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses continue to do that to just stand in awe of your presence and and just say thank you what a privilege it is to be able to be here tonight to uh, witness uh, the testimonies and baptisms and and just to witness lord again just the, the way that you're growing and developing people in this church and 
Just think of your word that says, out of the mouth of babes that you have ordained praise. And you've done that and you continue to do it. And we want to say thank you for the, the great God that you are and for the way that you're moving in this church and touching lives. It's exciting and we thank you. And pray that you'll just meet us now as we turn to your word, Lord. May you open our eyes and our ears fresh again as we continue in this series of, of Nehemiah. Speak to us, Lord, and may we again be people who are, are hearers of your word and also doers of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just ask before we start or as we start, anybody here speak French? Oops, I've spilled everything. Any French-speaking people? Oh, make it, let, let me make it a bit easier. Anyone here know a French word? I'd like, oh, look at all these hands. Okay, just three very quickly. One from this side of the room. One French word. Someone just shout it out, please. One French word. Bonjour. Thank you. And that means? G'day. Thank you. From the middle, one French word. Oh, Brandon. Can't even repeat that. What does it say it again? Je ne sais quoi. Great. What does that mean? Thank you. That's really good. Uh, and one hand from this, please. I see that one right there. Fromage. <laughs> and that means? Cheese. Cheese lover. Fantastic. All right. I've got one for you. I've got a French word for all of you. I don't think it's a, a new one. This is the French word. Déjà vu. Déjà vu, which means? No way. I didn't hear that. No way. No way. Is that right? Let me read you something. You'll learn something here tonight. Hopefully you'll learn something. This is a French word. Déjà vu, a French word, was coined by a French researcher called Emile Bauriac, 1851. He died in 1917. The experience of déjà vu is usually accompanied by a compelling sense of familiarity and also a sense of eeriness or strangeness or weirdness. The previous experience is most frequently attributed to a dream, although in some cases there is a firm sense that the experience genuinely happened in the past. What am I on about? Well, you know, as I look at... Nehemiah chapter 6, it seems to me that if Nehemiah knew that word, he would have said deja vu, because no doubt he had a compelling sense of familiarity. Here we go again. It's all going to happen again, and it was no dream. You see, his enemies were at it again. His enemies were at it again. Chapter 6, they're at it again. See, the wall's been rebuilt now and all that remained was for the doors to be set in place, which was done and recorded in chapter 7 and verse 1. So it was all done out of all the opposition, the stuff that was happening externally, the stuff that was happening internally and now externally again with a bit of internal stuff, which we might get to in a minute. You'd think that by now and all through that he persevered, the team persevered and they got the job done. And you'd think by now that his enemies would have simply given up recognised, well, we missed that one, didn't we? Uh, Accepted their failure in preventing the wall from being rebuilt and then just take a break. You expect that that's what the enemy would do, wouldn't you? But no, no. 
That's not how the enemy operates. That's not how our enemy operates. You'd think he'd take a break? No, he doesn't. Speaking of taking a break, holidays are on the horizon. Let me tell you, um, you can be sure that the devil goes to holiday resorts. You can be sure he goes to camping grounds. And you can be sure that he also loves the Gold Coast, particularly during schoolies. But I want to say this, you can be also sure he's not there to take holidays. So I want, to give you, I want to give you a holiday tip, just quickly. I'm sort of going off track, but I'll come back on very quickly. But just a good holiday tip, and it's this. The best holidays that you'll have is when you ask the Lord Jesus to plan and organise your itinerary. And then ask him to go with you. Ask him to be your holiday director. Ask him to be your holiday guide. Say, Lord, when we go on holidays, we really want you to come with us. And theologically, if you're a Christian, he will because he indwells you. But it's good to say that, Lord, we want this holiday to be one that you embrace us in. We want to follow you. We want to follow your itinerary and your guide for us. And you know what? It'll be the best holiday that you'll have. And you can be sure that he'll keep you safe from the enemy who also goes on holidays. And, and while we, may, we, we mustn't be, and it's important to say this, um, you, you don't become obsessive or fearful of the enemy's schemes and his strategies. All right? It's important we don't fear and we don't kind of you know, crouch in fear and, and all that sort of stuff. We don't do that. Um, but we do, however, need to be aware of his tactics and his strategies. We need to be alert to those things. And we read this passage last week. If you haven't heard it, it's a good one to underline and know where to find it. In 1 Peter, 8, 1 Peter 5, it says this, 8 and 9, Be self-controlled and alert. All right, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's good to read the next part of that verse, verse 9, that says this, Resist him. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. And you will resist him if you're standing firm in the faith. If you're wobbling around as a Christian, if you're mucking around with the things of God, then you will not be victorious and you'll find the enemy may get the upper hand. But if you're standing firm in the faith, resist him and he will flee from you. The Bible tells us that. We need to be aware of these things. And see, Nehemiah discovered that, for example, uh, depending on the situation... The enemy has the ability to change his strategies and to change his tactics. He does that. He has the ability to change his strategies and tactics, but not his character. Uh, we heard this morning, Satan is a liar and he's a murderer from the beginning. That's his character. He's the father of lies. We know that. But he does change his strategies and his abilities to, to, to change his, his tactics as well. You see, in verses 1 to 4 of this chapter, Sanballat and co, his cohorts, they tried this one. They send, and I've got three of these I just want to mention briefly, then I've got three other things to say after that. But they send Nehemiah in verses 1 to 4, they send him what we call a warm invitation. I'll just call it that. They send him a warm invitation. Look at this in verse 2. Sanballat. And Geshem sent me this message. Come, 
let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. One person paraphrased this, this invitation this way. Nehemiah, it's no use pretending that we haven't been opposed to your project. We have. But you have succeeded in spite of us. And now there is no use to carry on our opposition. For better or for worse, we'll have to live together. Let's meet for a summit conference to figure out how. And we need to be alert and aware that when the enemy, for example, um, those who oppose you because of your faith in Christ, and we need to be praying for these precious ones that were baptised just tonight, because they'll face opposition of some kind, so we wrap them up in our prayers and, uh, and so on. But for, for you as a Christian, uh, you will face opposition simply because of your faith in Christ. And when, and when you find that, that, that you have uh, those who come to you and they start using warm and welcoming language towards you and yet they are opposed to you, and you know they are, then you need to be alert about that. We need to watch out for the seducive or seductive and flattering words that come our way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look out for those who flatter you, for those who use and even seducive kinds of words and gestures. And the Bible is full of beautiful warnings that we need to take on board and, and understand what, what we, you know, and how God prepares us for these things. Proverbs 5, for example, 3 to 5 says this. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And then in Romans 3.13, Paul says this, Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. No mincing of words here. There's things to be aware of when... You need to be aware of those who smooth talk you, the smooth talker, those who sweet talk you. Be aware of those kinds of people. And so when that tactic didn't work, the enemy sent Nehemiah what we would call a wild accusation. So here's the sweet talk, trying to lull them in. Oh, come on, we can talk, we can do this. Trying to use all the niceties and so on and so forth and flattering words and da 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 when that didn't work, he's now sent a wild accusation. Verses not 5 to 9 says this, and interestingly, this was the same tactic that was used against Joseph, do you remember, by Potiphar's wife. When she, when Potiphar's wife in, in Genesis chapter 39, when she continued to fail to lure Joseph to her bed by her smooth, seductive words, she then changed her scheme and made this wild accusation of attempted rape. And it still goes on today. And we know that. So Nehemiah was now accused of planning a revolt and betraying the trust of the king of Babylon. Notice too that in, this, in, this, in verse 15 that the letter, sorry, that the, that the notice of accusation came in an unsealed letter. Why was it unsealed? Why was it an unsealed letter? I think that the significance of this is that the time that the letter left Sanballat to reach Nehemiah, it most likely was read by dozens of prying eyes. You see, the, the, the thing was opened and, and people could just kind of pull it out and have a bit of a look, put it back in and send it on its way. It wasn't sealed, so it was open to anyone that wanted to have a bit of a look. And, uh, and by doing that, rumours were now starting to be spread about him. The rumours, like wildfire. 
you know, and, and, and we need to be aware of this, that, that it's not infrequent for Satan to use the gossip or the rumour monger method in his destructive rampage against those who love the Lord to wipe out either the mission or the man. We need to be aware of how the enemy uses gossip and uses rumour to try and do that. You know, we know that, that much damage is done, much damage is done by unfounded gossip and we need to be careful that we don't become gossipers people. Um, A.B. Simpson, the founder of Christian Missionary Alliance, he once said this. He said, I'd rather play with the forked lightning or take in my hands live wires. Of course, don't do that. Obviously, don't do that with the fiery current than to speak a reckless word against any servant of Christ or idly repeat the slanderous darts which thousands of Christians are hurling it on others to the hurt of their own souls and bodies. Written by Albert Benjamin Simpson, 1843 and, and to 1919. So things haven't really changed a great deal, isn't it? Gossip says George Meredith is social sewerage. There you go. Pretty strong words. That's what it is. Gossip is social sewerage. Don't get into it, people. And folks, may the Lord keep us. May that be a prayer of us. May the Lord keep us from ever aiding the enemy by engaging in idle gossip of any kind whatsoever. Don't go there with gossip. Not even in prayer meetings. Prayer meetings can be a place of gossip. Be very careful about that. Dear Lord, we just pray for so and so and we hear, Lord, that this person has a criminal record and this person's been doing such. Lord, we just pray for them. You can see how it all gets out? It's just gossip and you've got to be careful when you're praying for somebody that you're not doing that to spread rumour or gossip about them. Just things to be aware of. This is how the enemy can get into, into us and, and start menacing and, and destroying things in the church. Thirdly, the enemy now throws at Nehemiah a dose of intimidation. Ever been intimidated by somebody? Nehemiah experienced this. In verses 10 to 14, the attacks from the outside didn't seem to work or have the desired effect. So Samballot now tries an inside job as we talked about last week. And this time it was by bribing a Jewish national to falsely prophesy against Nehemiah in order to intimidate him. And again, last week, one of the things that we saw was that not always does the opposition come from the outside. Not always does it come from the outside. I can remember a guy, a well-known guy, and probably he's that well-known, you probably haven't even heard of him. Anyone heard of Stuart Briscoe? We have, there's a few of us that have heard of Stuart Briscoe, is, I was going to say a well-known speaker and um, preacher, uh, author. And I remember him once sharing at the Queensland Baptist uh, Pastors and Wives Conference. And, and he made it very clear that, that he had a certain group in his church who were very openly, openly to him, praying him out of the church. They were telling him, we're praying against you. How would you like that? Doesn't that encourage the pastors? Hey, we're praying that God's going to remove you. And there was that group praying against him. And uh, obviously they were meant to be, uh, obviously it was intimidating, it was meant to be that way. Ever been intimidated by someone? Ever been bullied by someone? Isn't that hot news at the moment? Bullying, intimidation, tools of the evil one, strategies. 
So Nehemiah was, was a victim of these things. He was encountering these things. He was standing up against these things. So how does he handle these attacks? And I need to push on because we're going to go a bit over time here. But how does he handle the attacks of intimidation? What can we see in the word of God? How can that help us when we face these things? And particularly, I guess, this whole thing of intimidation. Well, it seems to me that, that these attacks, as he stood before God... As, as, as Nehemiah experienced these attacks, there were three things that Nehemiah had in place which I think helped him and uh, helped him through this. First of all, the first one is uh, his priorities were right. His priorities were right. When they asked him to meet him on the plains of Ono, I love this, love the name, Ono. What did he say? Ono. Oh, <laughs> meet us on the plains of Ono, Ono. Oh, and he said that four times. He didn't say, oh no, I just made that up. But he certainly, uh, he was uh, pressed four times to come and meet them on the plains of Ono. And his simple answer was, no, I know. Verse 3 of chapter 6. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times he was pressed. Four times he gave the same answer. Don't let opposition grinds you down to where you start to compromise where you say oh for the peace of yes okay no don't go there you stand your ground when you know your priorities are right don't give in don't compromise stand there God will give you the strength to do it so many Christians I think give up don't go there be strong and courageous Nehemiah was and we need to not you know your priority is right, you know you're standing in the word of God, you know what is right, then don't compromise. He said, no, I'm not going down there. My priority is to be doing the things that God wants me to do and that ought to be our priority as well. Not to give it up to go do something else. See, Nehemiah was God's servant who had his priorities right and nothing or no one was going to distract him. J.I. Packer, he wrote this, he said that a key element of leadership is to keep one's priorities clear. And that just as no amount of theoretical learning will help the golfer, Daryl needs to hear this, will help the golfer and uh, if he won't keep his eye on the ball, so no amount of wisdom will make a leader if he will not keep his priorities in view. Interesting, isn't it? Wise words. A clear and simple scripture that speaks about what our priorities ought to be is when Jesus said these words. I know I've said them before, say it again. We need to know this. Jesus says, but seek first. But seek first the kingdom of God, his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things he will add unto you, he will bring to you. You want to know what your priority in life is? Well, seek first God's kingdom. Pretty clear, straightforward. Checking that your priorities are right before God can mean the difference between you falling under and rising above and therefore standing against the opposition of Satan. Did you get that? Ensuring that your priorities are right before God can mean the difference between you falling under or standing above, rising above and therefore against Satan's attacks, including his intimidations. The second thing that kept Nehemiah from crumbling under this was that his discernment was sharp or his discernment was keen. In verse 2, for example, he knew, he knew that they were scheming to harm him. In verse 9... He knew that they were trying to frighten them. In verse 12, Nehemiah knew that God had not sent this Jew with a message for him. 
And with respect to a non-discerning mind, one discerning person wrote this. I think they're quite interesting. He says, many people have minds like concrete mixed up and permanently set. And he said another one, other people have minds like blotters. They soak up everything but get it all backwards. We need to make sure that we get our priorities right. And Nehemiah was a good example of that. He was clear-minded. He was sharp in his discernment. He was a man of prayer, a man of prayer, unlikely to act with the first, without first inquiring of God. Folks, I just want to encourage you, be men and women of prayer. Be men and women of prayer. That way you can be sure that your discernment will remain sharp and focused. I used this thing, remember the three P's, I used it last Sunday morning. Three P's, remember three P's, pause, ponder, pray. Pause, ponder, pray. When someone comes to you with a, with a proposition or anything like that and you're, not, you're wondering about what you should do, pause, ponder, pray. It'll help you in your discernment as well. It's good advice for all of us. I can remember as a young man, uh, I was, would have only been in my 20s, a Christian for only a short time. I was in the city botanical gardens. I can't remember while I was there. I was just in the botanical gardens in Alice Street. And I remember as I'm standing there and, and maybe with some other guys, I can't remember... But there was a group of young people that just caught my eye like that and they were kind of running along and jumping and, and, and so on and they obviously very happy and joyful and um, excited about life. That's what they portrayed um, and, and vibrant and epivescent, all those wonderful words you want to use. And they came up to me and, uh, and they, start, they sort of surrounded me and, and I'm going, oh wow, what's all this about? And uh, there were some very pretty girls there as well. And they started talking to me about all the things that they believed. And, you know, that how they all loved living together and being together. And would you like to come and join us? And all that kind of stuff. And I'm going, wow, this looks, well, look like pretty girls, all right, aren't they? And I was single back then, and 20, and, you know, all that stuff. And, um, but there was something in me that went, no, there's something not right about this. Something's off with this. Even though it was physically, it was all very attractive and lovely and appealing, but something inside me was saying, no, there's something wrong about this. I found out later that this group belonged to the cult called the Children of God. And uh, they're bad news. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but uh, they were certainly bad news. And God kept me from that. You see, he gives you that discernment when you just listen to him and be led by spirit. You know, have you ever said, have you ever met someone or heard something that just didn't sit right with you? You probably don't quite know why, but in your gut, in your inside, it just didn't feel right. There's something about that. You need to go with that feeling. Go with it. Listen to it. If it doesn't sit right to you, don't ignore it. God's word says this to us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world good advice isn't it don't believe every spirit so many false spirits out there amongst us and young people they're out to get you be very aware of them be discerning stay close to God read his word meet him in prayer then you'll be really fortified against these kinds of traps that are set for so many of us the third reason I believe that Nehemiah stood firm against these schemes was that uh, his, his, against the enemy was that his faith was absolutely unwavering. His faith was unwavering. And in verse 9, he prays. He prayed this. He prayed in faith. He prays in faith. Now strengthen my hands. 
strengthened my hands, he prayed to God, and God answered. God answered and kept Nehemiah and the workers who laboured for him safe from that sort of harm. And the work continued on to completion, which we read about and was recorded in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. The work was done. He prayed in faith, God met him, kept him safe from the evil one, and he persevered and pressed on and completed the work that God had for him. Then in verse 16, he spoke in faith. Prayed in faith, spoke in faith. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. And you know, the remarkable thing is that this wall, this wall that was neglected for nearly one and a half centuries, can you imagine that? It was neglected for one and a half centuries and was rebuilt in less than two months. 52 days God was at work God used these people God used Nehemiah they had their eyes fixed on him nothing distracted them they pushed through the opposition and God gave them victory even to his enemies Nehemiah's unwavering faith stood as a powerful testimony that God was with them I want to ask you a question how about you how's it going for you in your own life do you sense that opposition how about us at Sunnybank District Baptist Church? You know, I, I'm almost certain that in terms of opposition, as we as a church, as you in your own life, press on with what God has called you to do, as we do that, as you do that personally in your own life, as we do this as a church, you can almost guarantee that you're going to get opposition. When God wants to build you up, when God wants to build his church up, we will face opposition. And we will have those times when we might ourselves say, oh, deja vu, here we go again. But I want to encourage us tonight as a close. Let's remember Nehemiah's example. And let's remember and hang on to and stand firm on God's promises. And this is a beautiful promise from God from Romans 8, 31. We sing it sometimes. What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, oh, come on. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Finishing with one little, one little thought. If a blade of grass can grow, this is what Robert Harold Schuller said, 1926. If a blade of grass can grow in a concrete path, and a fig tree in the side of a mountain cliff, a human being empowered with an invincible faith can survive all the odds the world can throw against his tortured soul. If God be for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you that you have promised that all authority has been given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples. Lord, you've given us these wonderful promises of your authority, of your power. 
You've said, behold, I've given you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the evil one, the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We thank you for these promises that you've given us. We thank you for the authority we have in Jesus. And Lord, it's our prayer today, personally, individually, and our families. Help us to press on. Help us to stand firm against the evil one. Equip us, Lord, and you will equip us by your spirit as we continue to have fellowship with you, as we meet with you, as we grow in our intimacy with you. So you will build us up and grow us. As a church, we pray that you'll keep us safe, Lord. Keep us safe. Help us to keep pressing on, pushing on with you, following you, desiring you, thirsting for you, Lord. And and build your church, grow this church. You're doing it, Lord. And we're excited about what we're seeing as we see the evidence of that even here tonight. And we look forward to the days that lie ahead as you continue to grow and build your church here. So keep us to be people like Nehemiah, Lord, who just fortify themselves in the things of God and keep pressing on, standing against the opposition, encouraging and building each other up. Lord, that's what you want to do. And we just bless you and thank you again for the time we've shared together here tonight. Bless us, send us out into the week, and may we be living examples of what Jesus can do in a human being who surrenders their lives to you. Bless you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you now. Thank you for being with us here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.